Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, and here with Phil Goldfeder, former assemblyman, now the assistant vice president for government affairs at Yeshiva University. Good morning, Phil. Good morning, Michael. So excited to be back here with you today on Spin Class. And we are talking transition. We're talking inauguration. Inauguration Day is upon us. Many never thought this day would come, did they? No, I don't think they did. And interestingly enough, you know, I know we're talking inauguration. We're talking president-elect soon, very, very soon, uh, tomorrow to be President uh, Trump. But I'm guaranteeing you that your listeners are saying we're sick of hearing about it. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to talk about it. We definitely don't want to see tweets about it for sure. Uh, I think people do. The, a lot of people out there do want to see the tweets. It's that I think that that's the crowd pleaser. In fact, you're seeing very little otherwise. There's very little communication from the president-elect and from his team other than tweets. You know, look, let, let's talk historically for a moment and without getting into specific examples. But, you know, when a new president is, is taking office, right, we saw it over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years and, and going back hundreds of years. Generally, it is confirmation processes could be challenging. There could be some interesting questions on one or two picks or, or one or two topics that raise questions or, or, or raise some debate. There literally is not one cabinet pick that has gone without some sort of controversy, some sort of news, some sort of debate. Literally day in, day out, it is like a train wreck. And I've got one hard for to you. I've got one for you. Okay, Jay Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis. <laughs> so far, he, he had a vote 26 to 1 in the Armed Services Committee. He's out of committee, ready to go to the floor. I will give okay, you that. so we got one there. Do you know who the one person who voted against him was? Um, please. Our own Kirsten Gillibrand. Did you really? Yes, I yes. I did not see that. I, did like, I, see I that. didn't see that coming either. You know, it, it's interesting. She, she used to be a... Uh, yeah, when she was a congresswoman, really a, a moderate, really a centrist, and she seems to have really transformed herself to I, I a think, darling of the left. I think the issue less of darling of the left was more about uh, women in the military. I mean, she's really made that a mantra of her time in the U.S. Senate, and so I, you know, I like I, I don't I didn't get a chance to watch that particular hearing and sort of how how he answered those questions. No, she didn't but, She didn't attack, actually. Her rationale was she didn't like the fact that he was a general and he didn't wait the prescribed period. So she's a woman of principle. Okay. And that's what we expect from our elected officials here in New York, don't we? Yeah, look, for me, you're always looking for the best people. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've been through this in, in state government and city government. You know, you want the best people to do the best job. And sometimes there are technicalities and those things are in place for a reason. But... Sort of given where our country is, I, I think sometimes some immediate past experience could be helpful in times like these. So so back to Trump for a second, and I, I think you were you were going, I kind of cut you off on a good riff there, is that the confirmation process, it, it they were trying to go through it really quickly, kind of get through all of it without anybody noticing. And then they realized like these little things about details of your past of your financial history some of the things you've done they actually matter and they could trip you up uh, i mean some of these some of these nominees have had difficulty answering some questions yeah there's no question so you know and michael i uh, and elizabeth warren is having a field day she's having the time <laughs> of her life here i, I will say i don't I, know why she had wished that that the democrats would, because she is so in her element right now as an attack dog yeah but look at the end of the day <laughs> This is the challenge, right? Fine. She's doing great and, and, and both sides are sort of sticking, digging their heels in and making their points. But at what point do we actually come together? At what point do we have a president who's going to find ways to, to get along and, and, and find didn't ways Donald to, Trump to get together? Donald Trump on election night, didn't he say he's going to oh. bring the... He keeps saying he's going to bring the... Well, 
he is are you saying he's not bringing the country together i'm i'm saying that he thrives on controversy he thrives on 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 his ego and he thrives on his ability to be divisive cal- very in a very calculating way and it, it is starting i think it's starting to shine through it you know we talked about this a bit last week and we said, well, you know, when he was just one of 17 candidates, you know, we said, oh, if he becomes one of five, he'll get serious. And if he becomes one and one, he'll get serious. And if he wins the nomination, he'll get serious. And then when he said on election night, if he wins, right, and ultimately he won, if he wins, he, when he's the president-elect, he'll get serious. Now people are saying, and Michael, you have said this to me, right, when he's president, don't you worry, he'll get serious. I said he'll become presidential. <laughs> and you know why you know why I believe that? Because as president, by definition, he, he makes will, it presidential. He will, exactly. He is going to set a new bar for presidential. It is a, a scary Look, I, scary I think it's pretty thing. clear. I'm not the biggest Donald Trump fan. I, I will admit that. Uh, I have to say... Um, I, many of the, of the government he's putting together in theory is more in line with my principles and things that I, I would like. Uh, having said that, I also want competence. I also want a team that is going to not make some of these incredibly bad mistakes. I mean, Monica Crowley, their nominee for strategic communications director of the National Security Council. I mean, a plagiar, a plagiarizer. Uh, it's just they actually lifted whole sections of books from. But that's the kind of thing. I, and and you know, one nominee has a nanny problem. He didn't pay taxes on his nanny. You know, Jim Mulvaney. So and and Tom Price seems to have done some trading. Yes, they can explain it away. It wasn't him. It was a broker. But. It seems that he knew about it. It's all stuff that vetting would have have done. And I think it's pretty clear, had they done vetting before and started this process before Election Day, as most campaigns do, at least for the eventuality they might win, they would probably be much further along than they are. I mean, remember, there's 4,000 positions that need to be filled here. So they clearly didn't do that because they were surprised that they won. You know... I would say two things. So number one is it's a simple matter of preparation, right? To be, you know, when you see people who are caught off guard that people know about their past or about their history. I mean, we're talking about like top cabinet picks, right? This idea that you are now going from your private life to being in the public eye at the highest position in our country, at the highest uh, sort of places in our country. And so you should be better prepared to answer the most basic questions that I think you and I would have assumed would be thrown at you. Right. Number one. And number two is I think... No question. Betsy DeVos, who I support, should know the details. She should know what the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act is. She should know details of student loan programs. If you want to be education secretary, you need to know that stuff. Just like Ben Carson should know something about housing. Yeah, and and number two is I think... uh, the folks on the right, the Republicans, Donald Trump, the transition team, have seriously underestimated the ability of the Democrats to to get up and speak their mind and stand in the way, not for the purpose of standing in their way, but to give the American people this opportunity to get those questions answered, right? And some serious, serious questions. So I give Senator Schumer a ton of credit and, and the leadership team who have really, I think, done a good job to derail President Trump's... Uh, well, not derail. Well, delay so far. Delay and, and I, see. I, 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 if you can pick right now for me and tell me one of these nominees who's not going to be confirmed, I can, I get that. I don't know that I see. I maybe, maybe one I could see potentially who hasn't. You, you know, there's got to be one, but I don't know that there's going to be more than well, one. Here's what I would tell you. I mean, the, the initial the, the the thought process was, and I think we spoke a little bit about this last week or the week before. 
of scheduling all the hearings all in one day to try right. and sort of it was railroad a this through. Great strategy, right? It was a great strategy at, at, in, at in first, theory. Correct. At first, in theory, right? But I think I think Donald Trump and the transition team seriously underestimated the ability of the Democrats. Number one, by the way, oh, who have been doing this for a long time, right? Who know score this business. some points, get some body blows, get some punches in. Absolutely, no question about it. If you watch the hearings, they don't look good. It looks like some of these nominees are not well prepared for what they're doing, and you know some of that is. Is just, I think, the nature, the haphazard nature of this incoming administration. You just don't get, you get a sense that they're, you know, learning on the fly. And, you know, they're also, they've rejected the establishment. They've rejected many Republicans who have been there for a long time. They don't want their help. They don't want their involvement. So sometimes that's what you're going to get if you're, if you're really rejecting those people who haven't done it before. You know, it's funny, and 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 I, I I'll say, you know, the president took a, in sort of parting words today took a, another shot, I think, at, at what what's going on in the Middle East, and another shot, what I thought was a shot at Israel, and so there's when I yes, see, and, it took a question from Al Arabiya <laughs> at, the, at the press conference, right? You know, look, there, there, so there, <laughs> you had to know that that was a setup there. You know, <laughs> just some background here because the the way the Obama White House works at their press conferences, it used to be kind of free form, free flow. You know, everybody would raise their hand, and say, "Oh, call me, call me, 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 me." But that doesn't. That's not the way it works there. He has a list of people he's going to call on. One of them in the list. The today was or yesterday was Al Arabia was the uh, Al Arabia the uh, Arab News Network so it was a it was a it was a loaded question. Um, but I think you know there's times like that when you know there's a part of me a very tiny tiny part of me that says you know I think it's time for change and to get some new blood and new ideas. But is this the ch- is this the change that we're looking for? Is, <laughs> is Donald this Trump the guy? Is this change we can believe in? And no, I, look, I it scares me. I the the fact that look, I, I get people supported Donald Trump. They believe in him for whatever reason, and I I don't begrudge people. I I have my own opinions, my own ideas. Oh, no, right, we and, have and, elections. We have the we have the transition of power, and we accept the results. And that's exactly exactly right. But there's got to be a certain level of fear of not just the unknown, because you know. Yeah, I think have, I agree with you. It's more than that. How are I, you, I keep going back to this because it's just the most blatantly obvious uh, observation, but like the tweeting is not a problem per se. I don't have an issue, right? You know, you always, every president looks at the new mediums of the day to try and get their message across. So I don't have an issue with tweeting per se. It's the way in which he does it. It's the way in which... You just, oh, you see, so just, you know, hold that thought for a second. This yeah. is a spin class. We're talking politics on the Nachum Siegel Network, uh, com, and around the world on Arut Sheva, Israel National News slash radio. And hold that thought for a second, because you don't like the fact that he attacked John Lewis? I think that... Look, an John, American hero? John Lewis is an icon. An right? icon. John Lo- Lewis is, but, a, is a civil rights icon but, that is undeniable, that but is But does that give him the right to challenge the legitimacy of the president? I, I you know, I... Of the presidency? No, of an institution? I don't. No, By the way, and right? I don't. And Agreed. I don't agree with a lot of my, my, my former colleagues and a lot of people who are, are boycotting, quote-unquote, boycotting the, the inauguration. Oh, yeah. We, we should definitely get into that. You know, more, that number's more than 50 now. It's a huge number. I, look, and I, I'm disappointed. As an American, I'm disappointed. Right. I think Democrat, Republican, in, whether you like them, whether you don't like them, we have a responsibility to respect the office. And I, and by the way, and I don't, again, I, I say that as a Democrat, and I would, you know, as, as someone who, who, who 
understands what people are, are going through, understands sort of uh, sort of the internal struggle. But at the end of the day, we have a responsibility as Americans, especially when you're elected as a mem- members of Congress, have a responsibility to stand up and show the world that regardless of who he is, regardless of what he tweets, regardless of how he acts, we have a responsibility to our constituents, to our nation, to to you know carry on with the process and, and to keep moving forward. And yeah, I'm disappointed now. That is no justification for what, Donald Trump did for President-elect Trump did and said about Representative Lewis. I mean, he he's an undisputed icon of the civil rights movement. He he was sort of literally on the front lines. I mean, there are pictures. He has, has the scars to show. Yeah, it. there are there literally pictures of him getting beat. Right. You know, on the streets, and so you know, there's there's certain lines that you just don't cross, and it's not about not being political because people keep saying this to me, and I I. As you know, you know, I have this conversation, unfortunately, more than I like to, you know, people talk about um, people talk about, well, that's what we like about him. He's so different. He's a counterpuncher. Not, he's not a politician. You know, what? I, I, I can't stand that argument because nothing could be so farther from the truth. It's not about being a politician. It's about being respectful to to those who deserve our respect. And by the way, not everybody does. And, and sometimes there's questions Representative Lewis is not one of those questions, and, and I think that was below the belt. Well, I have a problem with, with what John Lewis said, not because I think that, okay, so he, he can make whatever comments he wants, a free country, but I, I I can't help but think it was premeditated. It was directly there to get under the president-elect skin, and we know he is very thin-skinned. He likes, to, he likes to respond to pretty much everything, but what bothers me about the response is not that John Lewis should get a free pass for 50 years because he... he you know, because he was present in Selma, and I that the, he has you know, incredible courage uh, that you know I don't think that I could uh, endure that type of uh, abuse. But the fact that Trump attack the attacks were so false, it's like as if you didn't even know who you were talking about. <laughs> He's all talk, no action. Number one, number two is a crime-ridden, failing district. Simply not that true. Simply not true. Simply I mean, he true. represents some of the wealthiest areas of Atlanta. You know, the universities. I mean, it's a college-educated district. Michael, look, it's it's just it's unbelievable. He has this thing. It's it, and it it's it's really. I mean, it, it's not pure racist in the sense that. I think that enough people really feel that you know he is he is not a personally discriminatory person, but he has this vision that African Americans all live in squalid inner cities that are bombed out that resemble the South Bronx in the 1970s, I, and and that's and every black member of Congress represents a district like that. And it's just ridiculous. It's it goes this goes back and I. I feel like I'm going to be saying this a lot with this on this show with this president going back to the old Senator Moynihan, right? You're entitled to your own opinions, not your own facts. I feel like Donald Trump believes if he tweets it, it is instantly true. Sure. Right. It doesn't work that way. And I don't think he quite understands it. It's uh, well, he he is in a position to dominate the headlines and to dominate the the conversation in a way that nobody has done. He and just question the media. I mean, look, and right, probably a and whole, cha- another, challenge the media, a whole nother show just based on sort of the, the new role of the media. But I mean, if anybody, you know, so caught he the barred, press conference last week, I mean, he literally barred a reporter from, from asking, asking a question, right? You can't ask a question. Well, why not? So get because this. I don't like the way you report. You can't ask a get question. this. I saw yesterday that he 
uh, that the Trump International Hotel at the post office, uh, obviously, everybody, most most well-known hotel probably in the world right now, uh, is has barred the media from the hotel, which is actually, <laughs> according to what I read, is actually a violation of their lease because it's a federally owned building. It are, there's also a D.C. law that prevents any hotel from barring people, I assume, you know, from, from tell, refusing... Res- to have minorities or Jews, you know, present, you know, so they can't actually legally bar them, but they did tell the media that they had to leave. Politico couldn't get into the hotel. It, it is a whole <laughs> new world. And here's the scariest part. No one, when we hear things like this, we don't even flinch anymore. Right. We used to, yeah. once upon a time, there'd be an outrage. There'd be cries. Well, first, first we, we used do to not scream. even flinch because like of all the scandals that broke today, of all the... The, the the inflammatory things that have been said, that's the least of it. First we scream and then we then we are just kind of start crying and, and whatever. And there's a part of me that believes and and there's a part of me that, that Donald Trump has desensitized us to these things. And maybe that was part of the plan, right? You know, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, because quite frankly, there like I started before saying that there's a percentage of the American people who are now turning it out. Okay, so, off, turning it so off. we're not going to spend the whole show talking about Donald Trump, even though we could. Uh, but we should talk about, we should at least for a second talk about his the polling. Uh, a number of polls came out this week. Uh, Washington Post, ABC. They're all false. CNN, exactly. They're all wrong. They're all terrible. But what they do consistently show, all four or five of them, Quinnipiac, that Donald Trump has historically, and, and not even like historically by a little bit, historically unfavorable ratings. Uh, you know, 40% favorable in the 50s, unfavorable, mid-50s unfavorable. Compare that to Barack Obama in 2009, 79% favorable, 18% unfavorable. Now, Trump continues to talk about the fact that he had a landslide victory. He didn't. He can't see that he has counties. That he has a mandate. Right. But I think we all know that the county situation is, you know, that's like saying, and I said, had this conversation with somebody yesterday is about this. It's like, you can't keep saying that a Republican can win New York State if you take out New York City. That's just not the way it works. You have to win the state. Okay. So he won. I, you know, it's not. Winning counties is not what's important. Winning electoral college is what's important. He focused it. He did it. He did it correct. He did it well. But that doesn't actually change his margin of victory, which was actually quite small comparatively. But his unfavorables are just incredible when you think about it. I mean, so unpopular. Yeah. And you you know you have to wonder what congressional Republicans are are going to think when whether they in the House and the Senate they're going to want to imperil themselves in order to pass his agenda. You know, look, it's it's a very strange or thing. Or maybe they'll control the agenda. If you were, I mean, as we all recall, and, and, you know, there were so many people in Congress and the Senate who were distancing themselves from Donald Trump during the election when he was the nominee. You know, various stories came out over the weeks, over the months, and, and you found people who would distance themselves and then come back, right? Paul Ryan himself, we're doing a rally tomorrow, then we're going to cancel the rally tomorrow. Then we're back together and we're not. And so you found sort of this yo-yo effect where members of Congress were literally like day-to-day sort of going back and forth. And and sadly, this to this point, Donald Trump has proven that he has the ability when it counts in the, to, to, get the vote, to get the vote out and ultimately get elected. And so 
I don't know what's going to happen. But what does that mean for, what are you, about the agenda? I mean, you've got to move forward. I mean, he is going to find out that you can't really, you can't necessarily just bully Congress in, in order to pass things. Yeah, I but mean, we also a, said you can't bully the electorate to get elected. Well, you know, okay. Look, everybody has their own agenda. Everybody has to worry about that. But, you know, he said this week, uh, and I, this was actually a great line that, that I saw from somebody that said uh, that Trump decided I'm, I'm going to have insurance for all. Right, so it, it's unclear as to what that means because insurance for all kind of sounds like Bernie Sanders. You know, uh, I want a single payer system, but it, it's. The, I, I saw a remark was, is this like a drunk guy buying drinks for the whole bar at last call? <laughs> like he just decided, okay, insurance for all. Hey, everybody, that's kind of the way. Here, health, ins- health insurance for you. Hold on, stop. You know, none of our listeners have to be, can be surprised by this because. That's the way the campaign went, right? You right. know, believe me, we're going to do it. How are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? You know, how are you going to deal with Congress? Yeah. How, how are you going to deal with the cost? I mean, look, right now, well, all I, we're hearing about is the repeal of ACA, right? The Affordable Care Act, what we're calling Obamacare. Do we have a plan? Well, Paul Ryan says we have a plan, well, right? Donald Trump now says we have a plan. We have a plan. No one has heard it because, you know, during the campaign, it was easy to say, well, I don't want to put out our state secrets. I don't want people to know what our plan is too early. Here it is. You're talking about right now we're repealing you know, the Affordable Care Act. I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I don't want to get into that. But what are we going to do in its place? Um, I think Paul Ryan you know, was asked this question, and I, I don't think he gave a suitable answer. Well, don't worry. We're, we're going to replace it with something that's great, and it's going to be even better. Believe us, right? And he's sort of taken on that mantra that, like, don't worry. It'll all be okay. And quite frankly, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what this country is, is going to be in three months from now and six months from now and in a year from now. It's well, it's uncharted territory. And so, but, I don't know if you saw today. Uh, the uh, the president had uh, a visitor at Trump Tower in in uh, excuse me yesterday in, in Andrew Cuomo. Uh, yes, who, the president elect. Yes, president-elect. yes. It's a good segue. And this is Spin Class here on the Malcolm Single Network, and uh, Michael Fragan here with Phil Gofeder, and yeah, Andrew Cuomo, uh, the twenty twenty potentially Democratic candidate. Uh, unveiled his New York State budget. This was a big, uh, and, an interesting uh, week. Untraditional rollout after using the untraditional state of the state uh, by not giving an address in Albany, and he did a secret rollout, uh, no budget address. So you're the Albany expert. Hi, tell, tell us what tell us what happened. I'm, I'm not sure how much of an expert, but I I did spend a number of years working <laughs> with this governor, and I can tell you that it was a fascinating the shift, the complete 180. Because when it came to you know historically. Uh, the legislature, the governor would present the legislature with his state of the state address, and a week, ten days later, you would have a budget address that was also broadcast widely and presented in a very public way. And so, for many reasons, which we could probably spend five whole shows on, the governor decided that you know he was going to take his show on the road. And when it came to the state of the state address, he did six regional addresses um, in Buffalo, in Albany, in New York City, in Long Island. Um, he did six uh, state of the state addresses. The reason being, I'm going to take my my arguments, I'm going to take my policies, I'm going to take my ideas directly to the people. I don't need to present to the legislature, even though they represent the people and they were elected by the people and they, they were on the people's house. I'm going to take my arguments straight to the people, which I think, you know, whether you're a member of the legislature or not, that's a fair and valid argument, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not. You know, I don't want to get into that, but... Okay, I you know I can wrap my my arms around it and understand it, but then to turn around the very next week when again the budget address, which is usually presented in a very public way, was done sort of under under sort of in, in 
the shades of the mansion, literally in inside, the executive mansion, in that's the correct. executive mansion in Albany, you know, done that it was, it was scheduled where some people would come in at two o'clock and some people would come in at four o'clock. And initially the press wasn't going to get it until later that night or, or, or the next day. And, and then it, it turned into this whole big, well, how can you give it to this one and not this one? And how can you give it to them first and not us first? And so Right. He didn't a, give it to the whole legislature. He gave it to piecemeal. He, he did, did it piecemeal. He did so four different meetings. The Assembly Republicans, the Assembly Democrats, the Senate Republicans, the Senate Democrats, and then the press was going to get it. And I think this kind of blew up in his face. And it, it was Yeah, because of course it started leaking out right away. That's right. And, and Wednesday in Albany, I'm told from, from a lot of colleagues and sources and friends who said that it just was no one knew what was coming or going. And quite frankly... The governor didn't make the announcements in the end because as people were hearing the various parts of the plan, it was getting leaked out, it was getting tweeted, it was getting, you know, people were holding their own press conferences about it before other people hadn't even heard it. And so it was literally done uh, in, in secret, in private. Well, who got it first? The Senate Republicans. The Senate Republicans. Right. Uh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Not, uh, not, the governor, not the governor's party. And this is the governor. And, and, and of course... Politically, the interesting line there was one of the senators accused him of endorsing or campaigning for the Senate Democrats. And the governor's response was, you call that campaigning? (laughs) You know, the governor was very open about campaigning for the Democrats. He made no secret during campaign season that this was the the opportunity for the Democrats to take over the state Senate. Um, You know, I, I think that... The problem with the Senate Democrats is that there's fractures within their own ranks, right? You know, I think the Democrats have to come together with the Democrats before you could talk about sort of controlling a house and, and taking over a house. But, you know, going back to what the governor did, I think was contrary to what he talked about just days earlier, right? Literally just a week earlier where he ta- where he said it's about transparency. It's taking about it to, openness, right, exactly. Talking right to the people. You know, it's you know, there, there's an interesting thing because we all have ideas, right? But then there's a, comes a point in the state where you actually have to pay for those ideas. So the governor can could run around the state and, and you talk. have to vote on them. And the people who are voting on them are the people in Albany. That's right. And they come to the legislature. The legislature gets a, a, a vote on the budget. I was very proud to vote on five budgets and, and pass um, historical things and, and, and get funding for, for really great initiatives. But you can't talk about these ideas and that then then quietly discuss privately how you're going to pay for it. Well, there seems to be a trend here. I see Trump at one hand also disrespecting the Congress to a certain degree. And you see Cuomo here trying to, uh, at least at this point, trying to do an end run around his own, uh, the legislature in Albany. Look, there's this, there's, there's buried deep beneath, right? And most people know it's not buried that deep, but, but buried is this idea about the special session and the and pay, pay raise. Sure. And sort of the, the general relationship that the governor historically has had with the legislature is, has always been questionable, right? And, and sort of ups and has its ups and downs, but this has been a, a rough off season. And so, we're seeing what what is interesting, I think, for most people, and what is most fascinating is what looks to me like a rattled governor. Um, I think that is the most surprising thing, and and I've had, I've had the opportunity to work with him on, on a lot of uh, initiatives. Um, this is 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 a governor that is making moves that just don't seem planned, that don't seem as calculated, that don't seem as as thought out. It's more of shooting from the hip. Um, and maybe that's a fact of some of his highest, you know, his highest officials. We're in some his, trouble. We're are in a bit of trouble and, and are no longer available to him, and, and maybe it's just because you know, I don't know, if, you know, we're, we're we're he's already seeing third term blues mm. in, in in the middle of the second so term. So let, let's talk 2017 for a second. We have as we close out this uh, this edition, we have filings for uh, quite a few New York City 
hopefuls and uh, of all sorts. Uh, Mayor de Blasio came in with a fundraising call of a little bit over a million dollars. Um, his, uh, that's not even from big donors because big donors kind of closed off to him. Uh, upstart Republican, or actually I should say Independence Party candidate, Paul Massey coming in with $1.6 million. Uh, you also had the Lieutenant Governor of New Jersey, uh, announcing her campaign for 2017 for governor, Kim, Kim Guadano. And she made this curious uh, announcement by taking huge slaps at her, well, I don't say her boss, but her running mate, Chris Christie, um, at, at that announcement. <laughs> but uh, let's talk to Blasio for a second. I know everybody wants to say, okay, he's not th- he's not vulnerable. Nobody's going to run against him. He's got plenty of money. But yet a poll comes out yesterday that says, and I know this is a fantasy poll, but it shows that if Hillary Clinton were to run for mayor of New York City, oh, she on. would come she on. would she would not just win; she would destroy him. I, look, it's it, it, it's kind of incredible. I mean, she would get more than she has twice as much support as he does. You heard it from me before, and I'm going to say it. I I believe it. We're going to say this every week until you Bill relent. Until you relent. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me first by saying I am not running for mayor once again. But okay, Bill De Blasio is going to be reelected mayor in 2017. And by the way. I don't want to let's not discuss other fundraising and other people's fundraising because I, I, I think there's a lot more to talk about when you talk about Republicans and, and running for mayor in New York City and how Giuliani won and then Mike Bloomberg won. And so I, I don't want to get into that conversation. But now I, there's no question Republican needs a lot more money. Oh, a, a, a lot more money or something to go wrong in New York or 9 11. Um, or something to go seriously wrong. Or 9-11 and a lot more money. Correct. But but here's the thing. Bill de Blasio, given everything that's going on and given all the bad press, I mean, you have the Daily News, the Post, day in, day out, beating the heck out of this guy, and yet he still manages to raise a million dollars in a large chunk of that in $100 donations, yeah. which to me sends a message of Well, I think, tr- I think Trump is a gift for him. I have oh, to say, no question, no question about that. Okay, okay, so we're gonna close out. I want to close out with a quote from Nikki Haley from her confirmation hearing. <laughs> the governor of South Carolina, who is auditioning to be the ambassador to the United Nations, she said, "I quote: I will not go to New York and abstain when the UN seeks to create an international environment that encourages boycotts of Israel. In fact, I pledge to you this: I will never abstain when the United Nations takes any action that comes in direct conflict with the interests and values." of the United States. Bravo, Nikki Haley. Bravo, and Nikki Haley. Too, too bad that the Obama administration in their waning days didn't understand this concept of standing by your allies and not betraying your friends. Thank you, Phil, for another great week. And this is Spin Class here on the Knockham Signal Network. Please stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs. See you next week in the first week of President Trump number 45.